please note that the views expressed and the advice provided in this show are for general advice and entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated should be treated as a substitute for your own independent legal advice based on your own specific facts and objectives. Therefore, the presenter and CliffCentral.com accept no liability of any nature whatsoever, either expressed or implied. Law, like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg on CliffCentral.com. I'm Gary Hertzberg, and this is The Laws of Life on CliffCentral.com. Alongside me today, Lionel Makoko-Klela without a suit. Good morning, Gary, and good morning to our podcasters. But why are you telling them that I'm not wearing a suit? Well, I'll tell you why, Lion. Today's show is about class action lawsuits. Oh, you were talking about that suit. Lawsuits, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not not about the suit you wear or don't wear. It's the... uh, it's the very class action lawsuits that uh, are going to come about as, or is going to come about and is very relevant right now in light of the listeriosis outbreak. How do you say it? Listeriosis. Uh, listerio who? <laughs> You've seen that video. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, that outbreak uh, hit our country recently very tragically Shame. and uh, we now know that Tiger Brands are bracing themselves for a massive Class action onslaught for compensation from all the families of the victims. It's quite unfortunate that so many lives had to be lost as a result of this uh, disease. But I hope that uh, all the family members, uh, may their soul rest in peace as for those people actually uh, departed. But yeah, uh, it's what it is. Lawsuit is going to be the case. Lance, what about those tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of minors that suffer from the fatal lung disease silicosis. Oh yeah, silly who? Silicosis. Silicosis. Their class action lawsuit, which is nearing settlement, I believe, will result in billions being paid out. I read uh, somewhere. I think the estimate is nine billion rand. Wow, that's unbelievable. No, that's 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 serious money right there. Joining us today on class action lawsuits is well-known, respected, and admired Johannesburg advocate. Senior counsel, just Andy Bester. Welcome to you, Andy. Thank you very much, Gary. Good to have you in studio. Like we, we always do. We don't do. often get a silk in studio, Lance. Oh yeah, like, this like is, we, this is but we always get us. the Rolls Royce of the world. Oh, this is the Rolls Royce. Yeah, you've got your timing right this time. Yeah. <laughs> um, Andy, we're going to talk about the all kinds of stuff on class action. I, I I don't know whether it's a secret or not. I believe through the grapevine you've been briefed in the listeriosis matter. So we've got to be very gentle in the way you answer questions. You're not going to give away too much, but you're going to just explain the procedure. That's what we're looking for of class actions, really. Gary, that's correct. It's obviously a huge thing in South Africa at this stage. Tragic. Um, and I am involved. And obviously at this stage, one would not want to get into the detail of that matter, uh, given that situation. Cool. Yes. Okay, let's get our uh, Contact details, yes. lines, uh, email address if anyone wants to write to us. It's law at cliffcentral.com, L-A-W. Yeah. And our uh, Twitter, Twitter handle, it's at Hetzlaw, H-E-R-T-Z-L-A-W. And you can always just tell us uh, any topics you can write to us with regard to any topics that you would like us to talk about. And we'll get a specialist, a specialist, lawyer or advocate in, within that area to come and talk to us to break the subject matter so that we can all understand it. Law, it's very complex. Our Facebook page, The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg. Please like the page and you can always follow us in so far as the podcast that we actually have in studio, uh, in, in house. And yeah, 
uh, we will always be able to entertain your queries. Our proud partner today is Legal Talk South Africa with their 173,000 plus Facebook members. Our show is pinned right at the top of the Facebook page of Legal Talk. Marvelous. Okay. So the 173,000 have the joy of listening to our voices live. And free of charge. <laughs> and obviously what is actually interesting about this is because we always do give them free legal advice and that is the most important thing. You'll be so amazed how many people out there don't necessarily have that privilege of actually listening to this for free. Okay, Andy Bester, uh, counsel at the Johannesburg Bar, so the uh, class action lawsuits were unknown and unrecognized in our country prior to 1994. Now, it enables small David kind of guys to take on the colossal Goliaths and beat them. And in the past, there was no redress. Uh, how did, what happened before 94? Nothing. Yes, Gary. Um, basically, to a large extent, nothing. You know, the starting point in our law is really that a person to sue must have a direct and substantial interest in the matter. Mm. And therefore, it is the person directly affected who must sue. There are a few exceptions which we need not deal with, trustees of trust and the like. But you must be the person who suffered the damages or to whom the wrong was done. But, of course, the difficulty has always been that litigation is not something that people are familiar with, and it's expensive. So the little people, the Davids, as you say, were practically unable to individually sue particularly big corporates. And that situation of big corporates being so much a part of our daily lives has obviously blossomed over the last couple of decades. Mm. Excellent. Um the let, let's just talk about talk generally. The we know right now there's been, there haven't been too many class action matters, have there? I think there are only just a handful of them. Absolutely, and and effectively none of them have really run the full process to judgment at the end of a trial. Mm. Um, it's also partly because uh, you've mentioned 1994 as a sort of a watershed. Practically, mm. in the new constitutional era. This op option had become available, but there's still no legislation regulating this or specifically empowering people to bring class actions. So it was for the courts to develop this uh, practically as something that is open to people. Um, and it was particularly done so in the light of Section 38 of the Constitution, which allowed people to, on behalf of others, take up uh, matters where constitutional rights have been infringed. So over the last 20-odd years, a few matters have come to the fore, um, and slowly but steadily the courts have had their say as to how this process should be dealt with. Andy, there seems to be, if I look at the legal talk members posting on, on class actions, there seems to be a misunderstanding or a misconception or a lack of real knowledge, and that's why we're running this show, as to... What a, what a class action is. People seem to think that if you band together and you get a whole lot of people who are pissed off about your service provider, um, then you can take them on and that's a class action. It's not quite so. Like Janine on Legal Talk, she posts this question. I'd like to know why class actions are not big in South Africa. And if I want to start a class action, what would be the best way of going about it? It's a very sensitive case. The information I have can help so many people that have had bad dealings with this company in the last couple of years. Now, in her view, 
if you put a whole lot of people together and they complain and vent about one of the uh, telcos, then that will be a class action. Not really so. You have to apply to court in order for the court to certify that you've got an action. Am I right? That's correct, Gary. We must appreciate that we start from a point where each person has the right to deal with their own affairs. Mm. So for one person to decide, I want to act on behalf of a whole group of people and go to court with a particular difficulty, is not simply for that person to decide. The courts require a certification process. Um, and that essentially means that an application has to be brought to court where a person or a small group of persons who are referred to as the representative plaintiffs will ask the court to certify a particular claim as one that can proceed by way of a class action. You need the court's permission before you can bring the action. You need the court's permission before you can bring the action. That's quite correct. So there's a process before you can issue summons, uh, which is the point where most matters usually start. That process, the certification process, is highly complex and, and highly contested usually. And uh, you don't, you can't just easily get it. You must that's satisfy the court that there is, in fact, a claim. That's correct, Gary. Yeah. Um, initially, of course, there were some d difficulties in appreciating what is required to show that a matter is properly one that can proceed by way of class action. Now, through the few matters that the courts have had the opportunity to consider this in, um, we now have a situation where the Constitutional Court has indicated that the ultimate test is the interests of justice. Mm. But of course, just simply that statement doesn't give much guidance. So the Supreme Court of Appeal has also indicated that there are certain factors, not an exhaustive list, but certain factors that will generally be very relevant to decide whether a, a matter is one that should proceed by way of a class. What are these factors? I think there are about seven of them. That, give us an idea. That's great. Yeah, what are these factors the court will consider? So, of course, there must be a class. So, what the court wants to see is that there is a substantial number of people who have a similar triable issue. So, the legal complaint must be substantially the same for all of these individuals. Mm -hmm. that's, that's really the starting point. And the court will look at whether the issues of fact and the issues of law, or at least the one or the other, is so much so similar for these disparate number of people that it's appropriate and effective to deal with it as one action. Is is it, is it a question of numbers, or can you have ten people or ten million people? Uh, it's it's not simply a matter of numbers in the sense that there's no minimum or maximum uh, number of people who need to form the class or who should be the representative plaintiffs. Mm. But it is a factor because obviously if it's only a handful of people, it's effectively s far easier to simply sue as, say, 10 co-plaintiffs mm. rather than letting one person certify a class for the 10 individuals. There's not much to save in terms of court time, lawyers' fees, preparation time and the like in a scenario like that. Are there a certain, only a certain number of lawyers right now that are doing this kind of stuff? Well, Gary, you know, as, as you've mentioned and as many listeners will know, it's a new thing. Mm. So there's not been that many matters and people are still exploring 
this terrain of class action. So inevitably that means that only a limited number of uh, attorneys and advocates have been exposed to class action litigation. I know that Richard Spur, who we were hoping to get today, uh, had to cancel the last minute. He was involved in the silicosis matter. That uh, represents, we don't know how many miners. It could run from 17,000 to 500,000 miners, according to the judgment. I think he represented them together with American attorneys. Now, American attorneys are renowned for these class action lawsuits, aren't they? That's quite correct, Gary. I mean, you mentioned a number of a couple of billion that people are talking about for purpose of settlement of this very action, Mm. silicosis matter. But, of course, the biggest settlement ever is is the one, the cigarette settlement in the U.S., which was $208 billion. Wow. So Mm. that gives you an idea of of the, the scale on which the Americans sometimes do it. Of course, that's... Far in excess of, of most of these matters. Are those attorneys the ones that are assisting here? Not specifically those. Yeah. In America, the uh, class action is well developed and mm. often used. Yes. Um, and there are specialist firm, tort firms, uh, who will not only specialize in class actions, but sometimes specialize in subsets thereof, um, health actions or environmental actions or uh, shareholder actions. So, so there's a lot of expertise from uh, the Americans that uh, is valuable to assist when we uh, proceed by way of class action in South Africa. Andy, let's dwell a little, if I may, on the silicosis matter. This is in respect to those miners who worked for all the within the gold mining industry and developed silicosis, which is a lung disease, and then TB with it, etc. They went along and they applied for certification. That's correct. You know, the whole mining industry, gold mining industry, was basically taken to task mm. in this uh, attempt to certify a class, which was successful. Essentially, uh, the miners complained that they contracted silicosis, as you say, it's a lung disease, and it's caused by exposure to dust. Yes. So their case is that the conditions in the mines were such that the dust there caused them to uh, suffer from silicosis and tuberculosis as well. And um, that uh, certification uh, was successful, although it is subject to a pending appeal. I know that according to the judgment in that case uh, for the certification, and I quote, the judge says the following, he says, with remarkable consistency, the evidence of the miners reveals that the mining company stripped them of their dignity and compromise their health and safety with such intensity and ferocity that they were effectively dehumanized. It's quite bold uh, to come out, isn't quite, it? Quite a strong statement, yes, Absolutely, Gary. yeah. So now, these mine workers, how, um, how do they get to court? How do the lawyers get paid in these kind? How did the lawyers get paid in this case? Uh, I believe there was a fees agreement that was concluded. Do you know much about that issue? Well, I, I, I know the basics and I can perhaps just explain a little bit about how the cost issue works. Mm. Of course, as we've mentioned earlier, it costs money to litigate. Mm. Now, the difficulty is, and one of the reasons why class actions are, are useful, is that people cannot afford the scale of the litigation to prove a claim, for instance, against a mining company. But even the collective group of mine workers, such as in the silicosis matter, cannot really come up with the kind of 
fees because you're talking experts, you're talking reams and reams of documents and quite a number of lawyers to, to employ. So effectively what happens is that the lawyers uh, conclude what we call contingency fee agreements with the clients. And a contingency fee agreement is regulated by a specific statute, the Contingency Fees Act. The essence of such an agreement is that the lawyers will do the matter on risk. Mm. And essentially, they then fund this uh, litigation, and there's two parts to it. First, they do not charge the fees as they are incurred, which is usually the case, but take it at the end, and I'll come back to that now. And the other part of it is, of course, that there are running expenses, copying costs, experts, and and the like. Mm -hmm. And that requires funding, and that often is obtained then from a third party. And uh, we know... Litigation funders. Litigation funders. Uh, and, and, and Americans, they, I think the American law firms, the big ones, have put money behind That's these quite things. correct. And yeah. we know that with the reference to the silicosis matter, in fact, there's also a reported judgment where the gold mines took that funder to task, wanting to join that funder as a party to the uh, application for certification because they said, well, if it is footing the bill, then they should be liable for the cost if they lose. If they lose. Yes, yes. And and that matter came before before the courts. Mm. Um ultimately the court decided that um it's not appropriate to join them, but that was particular to the certification application stage. So it may be that there's a further attempt when one goes to trial to join them again, potentially. Mm. But if one returns to the issue of how do the lawyers then actually get paid? Mm. Well, what, what, what do they get and how do they get yes. paid? Yeah. So obviously they can only do a contingency arrangement if they believe there is sufficient merit for them to put in the effort mm. and then obtain something in the end. So effectively what the Contingency Fees Act allow is that they may charge, if they, succe- if, if they lose the case, yes. then they are not paid at all. Mm. If they win the case then the maximum what they may charge is double the usual professional fees for all the work done. Excuse me on that. Assuming a lawyer's rate is 3,000 rand an hour, 4,000 rand an hour, does that mean he can raise that by 200%? Is that That's correct. So that's really the premium for the risk he's taking of losing and not getting anything at all. Or he gets a percent. Well, in fact, there are two caps set. Mm. So the lawyers may take the lowest of double their professional fees or 25% of the amount. Mm. So if there's a settlement of $4 billion, it doesn't mean the lawyers take a billion. One must have regard to their professional services. Lionel's licking his lips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, like Lionel, you're, you're thinking, um, hold on a sec, I'm in the, I'm in the wrong part of law. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. You know, many people think that is what happens. But actually, you know, what will happen is the lawyers will render a bill for all the work done over the period, assuming they're successful. And that bill can be agreed or it can be taxed by the taxing master of the high court to check for reasonableness of the charges and the fee rates. And that amount is then doubled. If that amount exceeds 25% of the capital, then it's limited to 25%. Mm. So practically speaking, 
if the usual fees would have been 100,000 rand, they can get 200,000 rand, even though 25% of the settlement is 1 billion. Yeah. But if the settlement was small and let's say the settlement was only 400,000 rand, but the legal fees uh, were still 100,000 rand, then the capital cap will be 25% or 100,000 rand. So they can't double their fees. They will take the usual fees because it's the lower of the two figures. Is this appetizing to the Americans? How do they get paid? <laughs> would you know the American lawyers? There are different arrangements, but I know that you know in some uh, states they may take up to 40% of the capital. Really? Um, so they've got different arrangements there. Mm. But at a practical level, of course, um, when a party is not putting money in as a lawyer, but as a third-party funder. Mm. They can have a particular arrangement there. Oh, they have their own separate arrangement. So yeah. there, there may be a separate arrangement. But mm. where they, where the lawyer, such as in the silicosis matter, yes. there is a mechanism whereby all these costs cannot exceed 25%. I've got it here. I've just scratched around. It says the parties agree this is what uh, went before the court – if the client is successful, the amount paid to the attorney, <coughs> excuse me, excluding disbursements, which is copying and stamps and all the rest, will be 200% of the attorney's normal fee or 15% of the total awarded, whichever is the lesser. Yes. Yeah. So that gives you an indication that you know, there are very definite limits on the legal costs. And there is an additional element of oversight in that where a matter is settled, the court must still put its stamp of approval thereon. So as part of a settlement, of course, the, agree of, uh, the, the amount of the legal fees can be agreed. And the court still wants to see that whatever the lawyers get is fair. fair. That's good. And yeah. so, so that because late clients obviously do not really have a sense of what legal fees should be um, and how much work should have been done. So there is oversight both from the taxing master and from the court itself. Yeah, I mean, m most of the members in the silicosis case are impoverished rural people. To them, um, maybe 50,000, 100,000 rand is like a million pounds, whereas they get a lot more. So the court has got to just make sure that what they're getting is right. Absolutely, because yeah. a, a big problem with access to justice is that people are not familiar with the legal process. They do not know where to go when they have a problem. And these minors are typically people who would not otherwise have had the opportunity to uh, have any claim against the uh, Swal employers. I think a large proportion, though, were also migrants from Mozambique and Lesotho yeah. and Swaziland. Yeah. Uh, so they're in a worse position. Absolutely, Gary. That's yeah. also why the estimate, the lowest and highest number of miners, is so difficult to establish at this stage. Andy, what happens if down the line someone comes along and says, hey, I was a miner. I never knew about this. I was stuck away in the hills of Lesotho. Can he, can he join in or how does he get – how do they share the money? Yes. Some guy's got a worse condition than the next. Isn't that a very complicated issue, assuming there are 500,000 miners that have been affected? Oh, it is, Gary. So, mm. so perhaps we can look at that in two parts. The first mm. is knowledge mm. and what the application for certification must include is a practical mechanism to ensure that at least – 
as many of the potential class members as possible will be notified timelessly. And where you have a claim for damages, which of course often is the case in a class action, mm. um, so far in South Africa, and I think for very practical reasons, the approach has been to proceed on a two-stage process. So the first part really deals with the liability of the defendant, whether or not they should pay damages for a particular event or series of events that cause damages according to the plaintiffs. And then a second part, if the first part goes in favor of the claimants, where the damages are calculated. So mm -hmm. practically, for instance, what can happen is that for the first part, um, such as in the silicosis matter, the approach is that the class is certified on the basis that the first part, the liability aspect, will automatically include all people who fall within the definition of the certified class, mm -hmm. and it is then for such a person to specifically tell the lawyers acting for the class that they don't want to be part of the class, they don't want uh, to participate, they'd rather go with their own litigation or, or whatever. Does it happen that people go it alone? Practically not, no, not yeah. really. Crazy, it would be crazy. As, yeah. as the court said in the judgment that you refer to, it's, it's, it's class action or no action for, for most uh, members of such a class. When I look at the advocates that appeared in the silicosis case, the counsel for the applicants, that's for the minors, advocate Trengrove, Marcus SC, Bud Lender SC, Dodson SC, Yoch. Uh, S. Bud Lender, who's uh, Stephen. He's, he's a silk today or not yet? Uh, not yet, yeah, I'm sure he, soon. <laughs> uh, this is about three, four years ago that the certification happened. Uh, it took a while and that yeah. happened in uh, 2016, yeah. ultimately. Council for the Mines, Loxton SC, Franklin SC, oh. SA Sil Years. I mean, these are the heaviest silks. Uh, Dennis Fine, uh, Gauntlet, Funder Linda. I mean, it's, it's the, the legal fees here, we run into <laughs> hundreds of millions, I'm, I'm quite sure. Well, Gary, I can, of course, not comment on, and I don't know what they charged, because one must keep in mind that, you know, top advocates uh, often give their time for free or at reduced rates for, for proper causes. I don't know what the arrangements were in this I don't case. Think, I don't think for the mines they would have reduced their fees, but I'm, 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 sure, I'm, yeah. I'm sure for the mines they, they, they would not have uh, seen the need to discount. Yeah. But of course, you're right, all, all sorts of heavy hitters were involved there, mm -hmm. names that you see in the, in the press quite often, um, and one can understand why. Um, you know, the class action concept is, is still fresh in our law. Mm -hmm. They are still many, many aspects of the detail of the process that must be resolved. And to a large extent, the silicosis certification was a test case. And therefore, everyone involved really um, put a top team in, in the field. How long does a person have to sue before the claim prescribes? Is well, it the normal three-year prescription? Yes, the ordinary three years um, still apply. That's one of the aspects that has not been fully clarified. Mm -hmm. But we've seen that the Supreme Court of Appeal in the Children's Resources case uh, made the point. It was not really an issue there, so it was not decided. But um, it is clear from the judgment that they approached it on the basis that because the certification application is a necessary prerequisite for the action, the 
application for certification itself already will interrupt prescription. So effectively, where ordinarily you will have to serve summons within the three-year period from the date that you uh, inc- uh, incurred the damages mm. uh, or, or suffered the loss, you now have to serve the application for certification within that period. Because litigation takes a while, so it's, mm. it's really impractical to expect someone to have the whole certification process done, including possible appeals, and still issue summons yeah. within a three-year period. I think the answer is just get to your lawyer quickly before there's a chance of it prescribing. A- absolutely, yeah. and and okay. not only for that reason, but also because the the sooner you deal with these matters, the easier it is to collect and safeguard evidence uh, to obtain statements before people's memories um, are you know, vague. Because often you find that a witness is for the first time asked, what did you see, mm. maybe four years after the event? And, and, and that creates Changes, practical difficulties. Yeah. Yeah. Andy, I know we're trying to steer clear of the listeriosis case because you're involved <laughs> in that, but let's keep it general. How do the courts deal with determining damages? If somebody dies... What do the courts say? I mean, uh, if he's a breadwinner or not a breadwinner, would it make a hell of a difference? I'm sure it would. Well, yes. Um, The essential situation is that, for instance, in in something like listeriosis, you have different groups of people. So you have have people who obviously died, sadly, of the disease, Mm. um, and they may have had dependents. So as you say, the the person was a breadwinner, so the dependents may have a claim for a loss of support in future. Mm. You may also have costs pertaining to, uh, for instance, funeral costs. Um, so the people who had the obligation to maintain the deceased uh, would carry those costs and they will have a claim. But of course also those who, who do not die but who are debilitated because there are permanent uh, consequences often of something like listeriosis yeah. and there are medical bills and and there's also of course the trauma and, and the pain and suffering involved so for those who survive it there are also claims of, of various types that they may pursue What is this term that everyone's hearing as a result of S.E. Dimeni and everything yeah. else constitutional damages what is constitutional damages? Gary, I think the short answer is that we're not sure. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and perhaps I should explain. Mm. The concept of constitutional damages is really uh, a mechanism to ensure that in those instances where an ordinary claim for damages will not sufficiently uh, correct the wrong that has occurred. Now, there's no real test and one will return to the interest of justice aspect Um, and not much has been said about it in our case law Um, what is clear is that it exists um, and it is further clear that it is not something that will easily be granted because the courts are uh, conservative when it awards damages Mm. and one first will look towards the usual ways of uh, um, damage recovery that we've had under the common law, but of course the common law will be uh, uh, developed in the light of the constitution. 
So, for instance, where someone has loses a child, God forbid, well, as well, a result of the child consuming a Peloni product or whatever it may be. The, the worst thing you can think of. Yeah. And, of course, there is a, such a thing as uh, compensation for trauma experienced. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the issues, and I think uh, it's safe to say that it will certainly be an issue in the listeriosis uh, scenario, is... Does something like the common law concept of compensation for something like trauma uh, really make good that which had gone wrong? It can never. And that is where constitutional damages come in. So it must be something that is linked to an infringement of one of the protected rights in the Constitution. Mm. And with listeriosis, one can think of a whole list of, of those rights that have been infringed. And I think it's safe to say that there will be a serious debate about the appropriateness and perhaps the extent of constitutional damages in, in this instance. In the past, there have been many, many cases of a child being knocked down by, by a car, uh, by a negligent driver, and the family got zilch, nothing, because you know the, the child wasn't the breadwinner, it was just the loss of a child kind yes. of thing, so there's no loss. That, that is quite clear. Financial loss. Um, and that, that 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 was always a tragedy, wasn't it? Absolutely. I think the only time that there was compensation, if you witnessed your child be knocked over, that's your trauma. That that's yeah. the thing. Yeah. So so there's limited compensation at common law for that kind of thing, mm. um, and the the starting point in our law is really that um, he who suffers the loss must carry the loss unless there was a legal duty on someone else to prevent the loss, mm. and that's really the conservative starting point. But when we look at constitutional damages, it it is something that's uh, directed more towards protecting communities, Mm. ensuring that across a wide spectrum, rights are respected. Mm. So one can see that in in the stereosis scenario, uh, arguments will probably be made that um, a product that's so widely available and so uh, standard in many, many uh, houses um, will affect so many people and that a failure to protect those people by taking appropriate steps to make sure that that product is not dangerous mm. uh, may very well endanger, uh, uh, engender this kind of almost indignation. Yes, well it has. And mm. certainly that's where the argument will be. Mm. Uh, it's really damages directed at making sure that people respect on a wide front people's rights. It is the scale and, 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 and the intensity of an infringement that I think will play a big role in, in that This is going to make big, big law in our country, won't it? One would think so. Of yeah. course, there's no it precedent depends, for yeah, this. It depends if it's settled or yeah, whatever. Exactly. I yeah. mean, the experience in this particular U.S. shows that most, by, by far the majority of class actions, settle. And do not go to trial or do not go to the end yeah, of trial. Yeah, I guess they don't want to be exposed, the big corporates. Absolutely. So yeah. there's, there's a bit of a weighing up. Yeah. Um, it's time and, and money and anguish on the part of, of, of the class members mm. weighed up against uh, the, the loss of management time, uh, the loss of reputation mm. on the part of the corporates. So, so there are all-round incentives generally to resolve these matters without lengthy uh, litigation. There's a new book out 
uh, on class actions, litigation in South Africa. You know about that book. Who's written this book? I believe there are tons of uh, authors. And how good is the book? Well, um, a whole number of, of colleagues of mine have uh, participated in this project. It really mm. is a... I think a uh, very useful book. Is this the first of its kind? It is the first of, of its kind in South Africa. Mm. Um, it certainly takes uh, us through everything that has happened in South Africa regarding class actions. And it also draws from the experience in a number of other jurisdictions um, as guidance for practitioners to, to develop class action, the procedure and the mechanisms of dealing with costs, dealing with uh, how to divide up the proceeds mm. and various procedural practicalities, which must still be developed over time. I think it's a must for for any lawyer who's uh, interested in this, and for the for the public as well. I think uh, they'd uh, enjoy reading it. I would certainly agree with you. Yes, uh, you said. Uh, I, I think you wrote something. You said no lawyer involved in litigation or teaching law can afford not to be familiar with the terrain of class action litigation. This book provides the necessary guidance, and it's a hard act to follow. We're not getting paid for this, but we're just admirers of, of the effort that's gone into this book. Absolutely. And not only from a South African perspective, but I think they quote, uh, and I've read most of the book, they, they quote a whole lot of Australian law, American law, good stuff. Absolutely. And very interesting, yeah. Yes, Gary, look, um, the, the authors are people who, who've been involved in, in the matters that have really set the stage so far in South Africa. They're people who've made it their business to understand uh, how class actions work elsewhere in the world, um, where it's more more well developed. So they've really put in a serious time and effort to put this publication together, and, and I think it's 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 a it's a decent product that every practitioner can use. Mm. Just before we let you go, and there's so much more, but I know you rushed for time, and uh, you're a busy man, especially with this case. <laughs> You've become just been appointed senior counsel. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Uh, what, like now? Uh, uh, yes, this month. Oh, really? Congrats. Um, who signs it off? The president. And it was sitting Probably. on President Zuma's desk at the time. Yes. Uh, you, must, you must be tearing your, your, <laughs> your non-gray hair out. I, You're very young to be a senior counsel or not really, Andy? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, there's def- definitely younger people. Who Are s- you over 45, if I may ask? Uh, just. Oh, just yeah. <laughs> I moisturize. <laughs> <laughs> he wears suits as well. Yeah. So, Takes um, good care of his skin. How do you become, how does an advocate become a senior counsel for those listening that don't really know? And what's the distinction between a senior counsel and a normal counsel, junior counsel? Gary, it's, it's, um, a prerogative of the president of the country in terms of what section 184 of the constitution, uh, Prior to the Constitution, it was simply just a, a, a prerogative of the president, uh, the state president at that stage. Um, it comes from the English system mm. where a Queen's Council or King's Council would be appointed. It really is uh, basically an acknowledgement by essentially one's peers that, that you experienced um, in law. Mm-hmm. That you are an experienced litigator with with uh, sound judgment, um, so it really is something that um, prestigious. And you can charge a whole lot more as well. Well, <laughs> one would hope that uh, that it doesn't simply uh, come down to a matter of charging more. Of mm. course, um, in in law, uh, fees are linked to one's seniority and experience. 
but I think there's more to it. You know, it's it's a, also a leadership role in the profession. Before Lions asks you just one question: Do you change your gown from a normal gown to a silk gown? Is that still so? Yes, the the style of the gown is different. Yeah. Um, apart from from the fabric, so mm. it's it's a very nice gown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is it a silk? Is it silk or? Well, I am sure it's not pure silk. I don't know whether they're silk in it, to be honest. That's why um, they call senior counsel but, silk. But, they they but, say we're going to get a silk. Uh, <laughs> Correct. Yeah, because of his gown. But Gary, of course, that's, that's you know, uh, quite a long tradition. There's quite a long tradition behind it. Mm. Um, so I think currently it's uh, not so much about the fabric necessarily. Yes. <laughs> but I must, I must tell it's you, the I, I did of not the check. Man more than of the, yeah. <laughs> One would hope. Lange, you wanted to ask? Yeah, and no, I just wanted to find out with regard to uh, yourself before you became a result, did you actually have to act as a judge in some cases, like lower courts and so forth? Um, not specifically. Um, of course, your your range of experience is is relevant and, and what you've done in the profession um, your participation in, in transformation, in uh, training, in pro bono work, mm-hmm. and, and um, the like. Um, Talking of which, Andy, you're the, the chair of ProBono.org or something like that. I have been. I've, oh. I've been for a couple of years. I've handed oh. the reins over. Uh, okay. you know, time comes when... Uh, when you you must, get too uh, busy. You, yeah. Well, yes, and and you know, fresh blood is always a good thing. Mm. I've been involved for, as, as a director for... Uh, ten years, um, about and that's four pro, of those pro chair. bono, pro, pro amico. Yeah. Yes, yes, um, absolutely. I'm I'm still involved um, with pro bono work, but um, I've handed that post over. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mind no, you, got your answer. No, certainly, yes. No, but best of luck. Um, that's a very prestigious position to find oneself in. Thank you very yes. much. So, Andy Bester, who's our guest, senior counsel, is involved in the listeriosis case, and it's. Coming up soon, you're going to read all about it, uh, everybody. Uh, we'll be able to read the, the papers. Will When they get issued, uh, they're available. They become a public document. Yeah, yes, uh, yeah. those papers are public. Um, yeah. uh, if, if history's anything to go by, you know, the, the media will quickly pick up on those papers and report on them. It's, yeah. of course, generally newsworthy type of work. Um, this puts you in another. I don't, I, this puts you in a in a big league. This Andy, this um, this kind of case because it's massive well, and the implications are so great. And there's so many people that have suffered from mm. this. That, and we, we we really wish you well and hope that your people that that suffered get comp- properly compensated. Thank you. That's certainly the important thing. You know, advocates yeah. are really behind the scenes and and the attorneys you know run run the matters properly. But I think ultimately we must appreciate that this kind of litigation is about ensuring that people who cannot otherwise be compensated and have their rights uh, vindicated, have the opportunity to do so together with others in in a similar position. Sorry, before you go, are there going to be any criminal uh, cases against the institutions or the companies' uh, uh, top CEOs? I would not be able to comment on that. I, okay. I can tell you that I'm not aware of anything. Um, and that's, of course, a, a whole different aspect. Um, and it doesn't necessarily flow from uh, civil liability. Okay. Anyway, that's uh, Advocate Andy Best. And many thanks for your time, Andy. Go well. And uh, thank you for choosing Cliff Central. Uh, we'll get you back when this matter yeah. unfolds. You're going to tell us all about it, especially when you succeed. Remember us. <laughs> <laughs> we got you at the beginning. <laughs>
<laughs> Gary, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure yeah. to be with you, and I hope that the listeners learned something about class actions uh, by, by no, tuning in. I'm sure in they did. Cool. Many thanks to our listeners till next Tuesday. Tuesday, right? yeah. And uh, we'll see you then. Cheers. Yeah, see Law, like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg on cliffcentral.com.